Hi everyone, welcome to Totally Dissolved, where we discuss all things coffee through the lens of education. I'm Kathy Hilberg. And I'm Bronwyn Serna. With the help of subject matter experts, we explore different facets of specialty coffee to educate ourselves and you. Thanks for joining us on our journey in an education in caffeination. Hi, Bronwyn. Hey, Kathy. I feel like I said that like I just snuck up on you. <laughs> Very sudden. Um, hi, everyone. What's up? How's it going? Welcome to this episode. Today, we have a very special guest. Yes, I'm really excited. We'll tell you about it later. Bronwyn, I brought you the coffee cake that I promised I would bring you. It's a pumpkin coffee cake. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. So good. Um, I was telling Bronwyn that it's already gone. Like, I made it yesterday, and I had a slice. I saved some slices for my parents, for Bronwyn, for my roommates, and then I brought the rest of it to work, and it's gone. So, and if anybody's interested, if you're a pumpkin freak like us, uh, Grossy Pelosi is his Instagram name, but it's danpelosi.com. Lots of delicious recipes. Um, His vodka sauce is to die for I could bathe in it um but the (laughs) the pumpkin coffee cake is where I would like to lay my head at night well when I make my orange pumpkin bread I will definitely save you several slices I would love that that sounds great what's in our cup today so this cup is a Stumptown coffee it is the Sumava de Lourdes micro lot from Costa Rica it is really juicy. I'm tasting like dried papaya, really ripe cantaloupe melon. It is a very delightful evening coffee, I have to say. This is a really nice Costa Rica. Yeah, it's a, a little bit floral as well. Mm-hmm. I'm missing some of the flavor notes because, as you will hear in the upcoming interview, um, I had COVID, unfortunately. Um, my taste isn't quite fully back yet even though it's been like a month now, so. Um, Slowly but surely. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, but yeah, it tastes good. It's just not like as shiny as you're making it sound. So I will look forward to tasting it again at another time. What else is new? I don't know. I think since we're doing weekly episodes now, a lot less is new. So well, I, don't know. I mean, our nephew, our, our, we're both cool aunties now. Yeah. <laughs> Kathy has joined the cool auntie club. I'm officially an Aunt Kathy. There were some senior boys in my computer class when I was a freshman in high school. Um, and they called me Aunt Kathy because they all had Aunt Kathy's. I feel like everybody has an Aunt Kathy. Senior or their, boys. Yeah, they called me Aunt Kathy. It's <laughs> kind of adorable. But it, was, also. it was funny. Like, I wasn't, it didn't make me mad or I didn't feel like it was rude or anything. But uh, it was very silly. That's very endearing too, yeah. I think. So now I actually am an Aunt Kathy, and I have a mug that says so, so it's official. That is so official. Yeah. I don't have a mug yet, but that's totally fine. I do share every time that I have a coffee um, with my nephews and soon niece as well, but she is also as almost as old as your new niece, um, but... I'm like, do you want to smell the coffee? And they're like, yes. And they just like engulf their tiny face into 
the cup and it is the cutest thing. That is so cute. It's so cute. Um, children and coffee is yes. very cute for whatever reason. They inhale really deeply. They're like, and then it's the cutest thing ever. Um, speaking of children and coffee, um, a buddy of mine who uh, works in coffee, he's a roaster, and uh, we met at a barista camp like many years ago. And he has a daughter and Boomtown Coffee Roasters. And they hosted, uh, I believe they hosted, I could be wrong on that, but they had cup tasters and his daughter did it. Obviously, like there's the age limit for competition. So she wasn't actually competing, but she got, what is it, five bowls? I think so. Yeah. Whatever it was, she either got four out of five or five out of six. And I was like, so impressed. Kids have amazing palates. Yeah. I hope that like she keeps it up. She was cupping everything and it's pretty fun. Yeah, it was cute. Yeah. Um well, do you wanna know who our guest is? Should we finally introduce them? Yeah, do you wanna know? Kathy, tell us who our guest is. I'll take that silence as a yes. <laughs> um our guest is one Mr. Christopher Hendon, um, of Water for Coffee fame and other things. Um, But we'll let the intro that he gives about what he does, because there's more to it than that. Um, But it's a very exciting interview. We both love it. I think, yeah, it's we both had so much fun talking with him. Mm -hmm. But also, please excuse the audio. We had some audio mishaps this on that episode, but I know Mercury in retrograde, whatever. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness it's over. But um, yeah, so the audio isn't great, but just re-listening to it as I was editing it, I kind of like forgot and got lost in the episode just because it's so interesting and he's funny. Um, so we had a great time talking uh, with him and kind of being silly about some things. And um, so hopefully it's entertaining enough and interesting enough that you will forget and easily forgive us for the uh, audio quality on this one yeah and yeah but enjoy welcome to today's guest we have chris hendon here with us who is a professor of chemistry at university of oregon um and the one of the authors of Water for Coffee. Um, but I'm going to let you tell us your whole job title because uh, we saw it and it's long and I think it would be better coming from you. Um, so tell us um, who you are in your own words and uh, how you got into coffee. Well, hi, Bronwyn. Hi, Kathy. Thank you very much for sending me an email and inviting me to be on your podcast. I'm really excited to, to do this. I actually listened to a couple in advance to make sure that uh, I passed the minimum bar. It's, it's really not far. You passed uh, a lot. Of yeah, you, 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 did a good, you did a good job of introducing me. Um, I am an assistant professor of chemistry at UO. Uh, and technically, I'm in computational materials chemistry, where we use supercomputers to study energy problems, primarily converting light into electricity, carbon dioxide into value-added products like fuel, uh, and that sort of chemical problem. And then also, separately, I... Uh, run a coffee research lab here at UO where we study a variety of things ranging from the uh, static charging of particles on coffee grounds when they go through a coffee grinder all the way to water chemistry, uh, espresso 
uh, physics, that sort of thing. Very cool. Um, how did you get connected to coffee? And like, did you just sort of stumble into the lab that already existed? Or is that something you sort of took on pioneering? Uh, well, at the, at the time in 2014, uh, I was a graduate student in, at the University of Bath in the UK. And uh, I was fortunate to have one of these specialty cafes down the street from me where the barista was involved in the competition. And uh, Maxwell Kalana Dashwood was, I guess he had already won the UK and he'd been to the world championships once by the time that we'd met. Um, but at the time there was a variety of questions bouncing around in his mind. And when you run a cafe and you're near a university, there's very often you're gonna run into somebody who knows something about something you don't. It happens to me every time I go to a cafe. And so <laughs> Max, and, Max and I sort of connected over that and um, I, I became, involved in the coffee industry by listening to problems that he was facing and he was sort of a relay for the broader problems at the, in the industry at the time. He was a good teacher. That's awesome. I feel like that's how we all kind of hope uh, we can learn more about coffee is just running into somebody that we can ask all of our questions to. So that's very cool. Well, when I first actually met, uh, we went to the regional heats when I first met Maxwell, I was, we went to, I guess it was in Birmingham in the UK uh, to get to the, the UK Barista Championship, which was always held at the London Coffee Festival. And I bumped into um, John Gordon, who now runs Gorilla Gear Coffee in New Zealand, I suppose. And uh, he said something along the lines of, oh, I wish that every cafe had a chemist that would work with them. And I, my response to him, I, I remember vividly, my response to him was, I guarantee you every single cafe has a chemist that goes through it. It's just that more often than not, that you know, you don't realize they're a chemist or the chemist doesn't realize that the cafe has problems that are chemistry related. Yeah. Okay. Um, what is in your cup for the, at the moment? Or if you're not drinking anything um, right now, coffee related, what did you have this morning that you enjoyed? Yeah, so it, I don't have anything in my cup at this moment, um, but I... In the coffee lab, we have a lot access to a lot of different coffees, and so it's pretty common for me to run into uh, into lab and grab something from the freezer. We label them all with numbers, so sometimes I don't even know what I'm drinking. Um, but we have lots of donated coffee from roasters all around the world. But actually, today I did I found a miscellaneously labeled bag of coffee behind me in my, in my office, which is highly unusual. Um, and I was and I was drinking this, and it was tasting uh, quite good. Uh, and I went back through my emails to figure out what the heck this might be. And it turns out that uh, we've been working with a competitor who works with Sam Spillman, um, who's thinking about entering into the U.S. Brissett um, competition. Um, and uh, you're going to have to forgive me. I'm going to have to I have to find the name of the competitor that has to show up in this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Gray. So Gray is competing um, and. and uh, was thinking about using a coffee that was going to be frozen. And, uh, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to spill the beans on comp other people's competition coffees, but I mean, <laughs> like, uh, whatever, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. So the, this coffee that I'm drinking at the moment is a Colombian coffee from Nariño. Uh, the farmer's uh, Frank Torres. And it's a, I believe this is a, a, I think this tastes like a washed geisha from this producer. 
this is undoubtedly a high quality coffee. Uh, it was roasted on a kawa, so I only had 50 grams of it, I guess. So not exactly like a, a daily drinker, but you know, that's how it is in the, in the lab sometimes. That sounds awesome. Yeah, that is a great coffee to have. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, all, it's all gone now. <laughs> so. that, right? Oh, yeah, well, you, you, you know, one of the problems with geisha is that, at least from my side, when we're working with these specialty coffees and we solicit donations, and roasters from all over the world have been extremely generous. Uh, home roasters as well, actually. They're, they're been some of the most generous. Um, people tend to want to present their best coffees for some reason when what I'm actually wanting is like coffee that, that every person drinks, you know, like it, funnily enough in my lab, we have not had a pulp natural Brazil single origin. It has not been donated. We have not had no. a, a single that happen for you. I yeah, make I, that happen for you. You can make it happen for me yes. and that will be a, a momentous thing for the lab because then I'll be able to say to you know all the students, I'm like, look, this is like for most people in the world, this is like this is an important coffee. And you're sitting here turning your nose up at, you know, this ridiculously like carbonic macerated Ethiopian coffee. Like, oh I don't that's not for me. It's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um well Brandon, what do you what do you have in your cup? Um since today was a very hot day in LA and I've been drinking and I did need to pick me up. I felt like something actually cold. So I am actually drinking the ginger cold brew from Stumptown because that sounded delicious when I walked nice. in here. So yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. How about you, Kathy? What's in your cup? I'm actually drinking tea. Um, I am just getting over COVID, unfortunately. And I can't really taste a lot, so I can't even really tell you much about it, other than it's an oolong tea, and it tastes like water for now. Mm. Um, so hopefully, you know, some people can relate to that, and uh, my sense of smell and taste is slowly coming back. So hopefully that also gives some hope to people who are struggling. <laughs> what, what smell and taste came back first? Well, I never really lost um, taste of, like, sweet I could always taste sweet, huh. which I think was a good, enjoyable thing to have while I was not feeling well. But like I was telling Brian when I was very hungry, for whatever reason, during all of COVID, I did not lose my appetite. Um, but I think um, acidity came back more than anything else. Um, bitterness, I can't really taste that much. And then... I don't really know what smells came back. I've just been smelling the same candle in my bathroom every day to see if I can smell it and I can smell it. So, but it's very faint. So yeah. well, let's get on to our topic. I think it's a good segue since everything tastes like water too. Cassidy. Yes. <laughs> Segwaying into our specific topic for today, which is water chemistry as it relates to coffee. Um, in your book, you write in the summary, water can transform the character of a coffee and it can accentuate its acidity or wipe it out entirely. And it can increase or decrease body, change extraction, and a whole lot more. It affects the way we roast and the way we brew. Can we begin here? And can you please explain how water chemistry and physics is important in the context of coffee, just as a basis? To okay. Because the book is very dense. It's like reading a textbook because it essentially is. 
It is, yeah. Uh, so this is a big topic, and I'm going to try and build it up pretty slowly. So that, so the generally speaking, most people are familiar with water being made from H2O, right? And the idea then is in coffee, most people are until I guess 2005 or something, we're used to brewing coffee hot. So with those, those two things in mind, you people generally have an idea that water is a substance which can be heated, it can be cooled, at some point it boils, and at another point it freezes. Um, and also, because you're mixing it with coffee, it dissolves stuff in the coffee, it ends up in the water, you drink that. Um, at the stage when I first got into the coffee industry, it was also known that water dissolves other things rather than coffee. It can dissolve minerals, it can dissolve... Uh, Oh, well, basic, yeah, it dissolves basically everything. It's pretty, it's a pretty good solvent. And um, at the time in the coffee industry, we knew in, in 2014, let's say, that minerals had some impact on flavor, but it wasn't really spelled out and, and sort of dissected as to how each mineral would maybe contribute to extraction, flavor, uh, sensor, some other sensory components such as mouthfeel, et cetera. Um, and so I can summarize the, the book's findings in two sort of categories, but then we have to go into how it affects, trickles through the whole industry. So on one hand, you have, um, you have these positively charged things that float around in water called cations, or uh, mm -hmm. generally when people think of minerals, they're, they're that, they're the positively charged things. So you have the, the main actors are sodium, which you find a lot of that in salt water, of course. You have potassium, if the thing that's in bananas, uh, you then also have calcium and magnesium. Now you find calcium basically everywhere on the surface of earth because it's, you know, your bones contain some calcium, uh, shells are made of calcium and so forth. Um, and then magnesium is a little more difficult to find. Of course, you find it in plants. It's, it's in chlorophylls. It's one of the key components that makes plants green. So there's, there's a variety of different, uh, sources for these, these so-called minerals. Um, but central to this is the idea that Calcium two plus, magnesium two plus, sodium plus, and potassium plus can dissolve in water. So those in our book, we offered this general idea that they were flavor extractors. They would help you access organic molecules in coffee and bring them into water. Um, over the years, actually, it's become a little less clear that they actually do that. They might ex amplify the flavors of those molecules, but it's been very difficult to detect actual increases in the concentrations of acids based on using higher magnesium or calcium water. Um, on the other hand, though, every positive charge that ends up in the water has to have a, a, a negative charge that comes with it. And so for every one calcium two plus, there must be two minuses that just somehow show up as well. And so the minuses that you typically find on Earth are chloride, Cl minus. Of course, that's in salt water is sodium chloride. Um, there is also... Uh, uh, carbonate, which is CO3 two minus, so you could have one calcium or one carbonate, or bicarbonate, which we call the buffer, which is related to carbonate, it, and it's HCO3 minus, it carries a single negative charge. Um, and I think bicarbonate is probably the main actor in coffee flavor that's probably the most important to talk about, because bicarbonate's role generally in chemistry is to try and maintain a stable pH. But since coffee is acidic inherently, when you dissolve coffee material into water that contains bicarbonate, the water is going to do is going to act to try and minimize that that change in 
acidity. So it's going to try and keep the pH closer to seven rather than allowing it to go towards five where most coffee ends up. And as a result, all the those wonderful molecules that we care about and all the score sheets, et cetera, that great acidity, they're all going to suffer because you won't be able to taste the acidity because it's all been soaked up by the bicarbonate. Um, and so I call the bicarbonate then the flavor structure. And uh, so you, you can sort of roughly think of it as like positively charged things are the extractors and negatively charged things structure the things that you've extracted. Um, and that, that's basically the thesis of water for coffee. Uh, we went on to talk a little more about some of like ideal recipes and so forth. But the, you know, after reflecting on this for almost eight years now, uh, it's become abundantly clear that the recipes don't matter unless you're in the brewer's cup. Um, because at the end of the day, you're going to open a cafe in Tulsa and you may want to open another cafe in Jackson Hole. And there's a good chance that those two locations do not have the same water, but you're going to do your very best to filter it in some way that gets you to something that makes tasty coffee. So the reality is it's more about the, there's no ideal water, but the right water for the coffee you have is the one that the coffee was roasted for. So the local roastery's got some water, they cup the coffee. That's where it's going to taste good. And sure, it might, might taste good in other ones, but you just can't know until you brew it another co uh, that coffee in other water. So that's kind of where we ended up after all this hard work. Um, but it sure, did, it sure did go down lots of different rabbit holes. Um, I feel like you kind of led into this next question by the end of your um, answer to the last question there. Um, but as people who make coffee, that's generally who are like the, the beverage, who our audience is. Um, and, you know, surely there are some roasters who have listened, but I think we are more, again, the other side of that. Um, and that's kind of, I think, where we typically discuss water is in the context of brewing. Um, but can you discuss a little bit more and help explain how water also affects roast profiles? Yeah. So generally for the audience listening, if they're primarily people who have beans that are brown already and then have to make them work, um, the limits are set, right? The, you're down to normal brew variables. Dose, brine setting, water temperature, etc. Uh, at least on an industrial scale. Um, but the thing is, is that coffee, when you when it starts out green, contains all the molecules it can possibly can contain um, before it goes into the roaster. And then the roaster is going to make decisions based on uh, initial temperature, time to first crack, and then the development time and end temperature and grading, and all the all the stuff that we've learned about roasting over the years. But really important in this is that a lot of these lightweight organic acids are volatile and they also get destroyed in the roast. And so the longer you're going to roast this coffee at the higher temperature, you're going to start to see changes in the available molecules that you can extract into the cup. And so as a result, you may choose to try and keep as many of them around as possible, which would make the coffee extremely acidic. Um, and sure, you can brew acid away. Right. There's ways to, you you know, you down dose and you try and deliberately over extract and access some of the more toasty notes that may exist. But but at the end of the day, if the coffee has a lot of acid, that acid is soluble. It's going to end up in the cup. And so what you then usually find is actually the roaster didn't deliberately choose to make that coffee as acidic as it may taste in your cup. They probably chose for that acid to balance out with the water they had in their cup. 
And actually, there's a classic example of this. So uh, in our book, we put a dot for Tim Wendelboe. Um, and anyone who's ever had any of Tim Wendelboe's coffees would know, would know he roasts, quote unquote, light, very light, I would say. Um, but that's in part because Tim Wendelboe has relatively high concentrations of bicarbonate in his water. And so when you're thinking about roasting, uh, you're going to roast so that you can taste some acid. And over there, you're, you can't really taste that much acid unless you roast it in a way that leaves a lot of acid around. So that points to this idea then that the roaster is making, uh, I'd say, subconscious decisions about how they want to change their roast so that it maximizes the quality on their cupping table, um, which is a problem. Because if you live in a hard water location, like let's say you live in Colorado or Utah or something like this, and the roaster is, has an industrial filtration system, and they're roasting their coffees and they taste gorgeous on the cupping table. But you buy a bag and you take it home and you don't have any filtration whatsoever, you're fighting an uphill battle. Um, yeah. Because, you, you know, you, the roaster didn't roast it for your water. They roasted it for their water, whatever that water happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting because I've experienced that working for roasters and then selling our coffee wholesale or sending people samples wholesale. And they're oh. like, we can't get it to taste good, but we've had your coffee and we know that it's good. Um, we don't know what's wrong. And that just makes a whole lot of sense. I asked, you know, I asked um, Steve, Steve Layton, from Has Been Coffee in London, uh, London, Stratford, Stafford. I should know that. Anyway, England. Let's go. Let's go wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, I asked him about whether he's ever rejected a wholesale account cafe based on their water chemistry. Um, because if you think about it, it's actually somewhat of a. It's a weird question, of course, but it's somewhat of a risk because if you sell a Gucci. Wash Gucci to someone and they have super hard water and it just totally destroys the flavor profile. And then now your brand at this multi roaster cafe is tasting worse than all these other brands. It's not good business, right? So I asked him the question. Um, and he said that he's never rejected uh, an account, but he has um, sort of guided people into, for example, buying a, a pulp natural Brazil rather than buying like a, a Huila Colombian coffee that's just like driven by green apple acidity. Because if that coffee, if they get it, they're not going to be happy if they're not using water that's going to allow them to taste it. Whereas the pulp natural Brazil, it's going to, you know, it's going to chocolate and dried fruits all day. It's going to taste like that regardless, right? Right. Yeah. And I feel too like that concept of the Scandinavian roast profile, no one outside of Scandinavia has really been doing that right because they're not considering the water yeah. chemistry at any of their roasteries. And so, yeah, and also like for customers that get bags of very lightly roasted coffees, which tends to be, well, which has been the trend recently. Um, yeah, they're constantly complaining, well, this is way too acidic. Totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, which I think leads to a great discussion about water filtration. We know it's important and it varies from location to location, even within the same city. Like here in LA, we have very hard water and it can vary in hardness even from like neighborhoods. 
Um, can you explain the why, what, and how it affects the coffee and equipment? Yeah, it's so this is really tricky because in 2014, the go-to was just to prescribe reverse osmosis to everybody, followed by some sort of remineralization or blending water back in. And actually, to some extent, that still is the go-to for, for sales representatives who are trying to move water filtration products. But but of course, that that's not actually the solution to this problem because the... What you're really doing with water filtration, there are two different, like fundamentally different approaches, okay? So one, you're removing stuff. That is reverse osmosis. You remove everything, and then you're going to try and build it back up. And on the other hand, you have ion exchange resins. And these these are the things that you, you uh, run into very regularly. Um, you can see BWT, for example, makes like a magnesium exchange where you basically flow calcium-rich water in. And out comes magnesium-rich water. So for every calcium, you switch it out for magnesium. Okay. So these these two these two approaches um, are the basically the only way people filter water uh, for for targeting the minerals, I should say. Okay. Um, okay. So we've got to unpack it a little bit because it, it's it's it gets complicated. <laughs> Let's start with the, like the most the most common, like the the absolute most familiar ion exchange resin that you've probably seen, which carbon. is, which, which one? Carbon. carbon uh, so carbon, actually, good one. That's, yeah. let's start there. Let's okay. go there. Okay. So carbon, carbon, carbon does not affect the mineral composition at all. Um, carbon's role in, as the sales reps will tell you, is if it's there for taste and like taste and odor or color as well. Um, basically, Carbon filtration is roasted coconut shells that have been roasted till the point where they're no longer really containing hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. They just basically contain carbon, kind of make, make charcoal out of it. Um, and at that point, it's, carbon's not soluble in water. Uh, if it was, then diamonds would dissolve and uh, your graphite pencil would lose the you know, center of it. You get the idea, okay? So, so carbon's not soluble in water, but it turns out that things that are also not soluble in water would then tend to like to stick to the carbon. And so things like uh, oily compounds, organic molecules that weren't really happy in water, but, you know, water's happy enough, they'd rather stick to the carbon. So when you have things like uh, um, chlorine-treated water, um, the chlorine source can come from a variety of different places, but inevitably uh, it can be deposited onto the carbon. The carbon will remove that. Uh, places like Los Angeles, sometimes you get a cup of water and leave it on the counter for a while, and at some point it develops that wet dog smell. That that is what would be removed. The molecule responsible for that would be removed using carbon filtration. Um, that's important, uh, of course, because you don't want those molecules in there. Number one, number two, you don't want to push them through a reverse osmosis scroll or expose them to the surface of this. Uh, ion exchange resin. So generally speaking, everyone should be filtering their water with carbon, at least on an industrial level. Um, and certainly the industry has made a ton of money from people filtering their water through carbon at a home level, uh, because there's, I don't know how many co companies make a home filtration system now like that, but you know, a Brita filter or whatever. Uh, but for, in terms of coffee quality, there's really only two approaches uh, in, for minerals. Okay. And the most common one that you probably have seen, maybe maybe you know someone who has this, is this 
this ion exchange resin where periodically you have to pour a ton of salt, like table salt, into this vat. And you, you do it, you know, and then basically the system filters the water throughout the day. And then overnight, there's one hour where it regenerates the surface of the resin. So what this is doing is it's basically making a sodium-rich resin that grabs onto calcium and pushes the sodium into the water and the calcium comes out. And the idea, they call this a water softener at the industrial level for your house. The idea is that you're going to try and remove calcium and you're also, but that's it. And, and by doing so, you're also then preventing calcium binding to bicarbonate to form limescale. Mm -hmm. So sure, you've satisfied the goal. You have made water that will not form limescale. But in doing so, all you've done there is you've removed calcium, the flavor extractor, but you've left behind the, the bicarbonate. So you, the sodium exchange one where you pour the, water, the salt into this resin is like catastrophically bad for coffee. This is like the worst possible thing you could do. Yeah. So, so the industry knows this, uh, sort of. <laughs> I, well, they do now. <laughs> but uh, but um, they're not, that's not what you'll see in a cafe. That's not what you'll see if you use, you know, a specialty product at home to filter water. Instead, what you'll find is some ion exchange resin that has some magnesium on there so that you can get rid of the calcium, but still maintain the high two plus charges. And so it serves the same purpose as the salt one does exactly the same thing, but gives you magnesium rather than sodium. Okay. So that's one thing. The other type of ion exchange resin that's probably less talked about is one that has hydrogen on the surface, uh, as well as maybe a little bit of sodium. The reason these are useful is that the hydrogen actually can be used to destroy bicarbonate. So that's, that's kind of a, it's a, like a weird little trick is that you have the calcium come along, sticks to the surface, releases a hydrogen and a, and a sodium. And that hydrogen that gets released goes off and finds bicarbonate and destroys it and turns it into carbon dioxide. And so that's pretty neat because that means that we can use an ion exchange resin to generally lower the mineral composition of water by absorbing some of that calcium. Maybe you want to do that, maybe not. But at the same time, lowering the bicarbonate down. And so that's, why, that's where these things really shine is if you couple us one that gives protons or hydrogen into solution with one that gives magnesium into solution. Those two together allow you to lower the, the calcium content and also the bicarbonate content basically separately, like two knobs. Um, so that, that's sort of where the industry went with ion exchange resins because people realized that it's nice to be able to destroy bicarbonate so you can taste acid. And it would also be nice to separately control whether you have calcium or magnesium because Regardless of whether they, we can measure whether they extract different things, I tell you what, they definitely taste different. So anyone who's competed and used mm -hmm. magnesium-rich water knows it's different than calcium-rich water. So, you know, so those are those are the two knobs. Okay, separately to that, there's reverse osmosis. That's where you strip everything out, and then you build it back up. And then what's become common is building it back up with calcite, which is basically a cartridge filled with lime scale and you just inject some lime scale back into the water. And by doing so, that in principle uh, imparts these minerals. There was a second part of your question was, what's the sort of the impact? I guess maybe think you want to talk about equipment or you want to talk yeah. about uh, flavor? Both, let's talk about both. Okay, all right. So, <laughs> so the thing about it is, is that like from an equipment perspective, in my lab, I have 
a, an espresso machine that is, I don't know, let's say $20,000. These things are expensive, right? And I would never personally have one of these in my house, but if I had one in my house, I'd care even more uh, about this because I would be financially invested in this thing. Okay. So it, the machines are made from metal and metals are notoriously bad at rusting. And so you're basically going to do everything you can to prevent rust. And at the same time, we know that water really wants to deposit lime scale if it if it's you know above a critical amount of calcium and bicarbonate so we got these two things we have to deal with the rusting situation in water we also have to deal with the lime scale deposition problem and so the industry has is de is developed this understanding that that chloride cl minus that one negative charge that shows up in salt water mm -hmm. that's actually not good for the the, the life span of an espresso machine or steel in general uh, it will cause corrosion, um, and depending on where you live, you can find more or less chloride in your water, particularly if you're close to the coast, you'll tend to find a little more chloride. So that's a problem because you don't want to have a hole of rust drill its way through your steam boiler in your espresso machine, right, for obvious yeah. reasons. At the same time, you don't want your espresso steam boiler to be depositing lime scale on important pieces of equipment, such as the uh, pressure relief valve, in your espresso boiler, uh, that would be bad as well. Or perhaps even sort of less dramatic than that, just on the heating element. Yeah. And because you're just going to lose, you're just going to become energy inefficient. And at some point, your pipes will clog. You want to have water moving through it. It's just not. It's just going to be a big mess. And so yeah. somewhere in the middle there, you need to have water that is, you know, buffering enough that you can actually like take away some of the acidity in the coffee because you do want a little bit of buffer in there. Not too much that it doesn't deposit lime scale. Maybe you want a little chloride in there, not because the chloride does anything, but because you Cl minus gives you a minus. And for every minus, as I mentioned, you have to have a plus. And so the Cl minus floating around there gives you space to have more calcium or magnesium, right? So you do want to like have the chloride high enough that you can actually get some calcium or magnesium around. So, so it's like this balance, right? And, and at the end of the day, the balance tends to always land on, okay, like whatever, my coffee is going to taste good enough, but I'm not going to waste twenty thousand dollars and lose parts of my espresso machine because I'm still going to have people come through this door if my coffee is tasting like an eighty-four instead of an eighty-seven pointer. But I'm not going to have anyone coming through the door if I have a boiler that doesn't boil. Yep. So that's yeah, that's that's sort of where we ended up. I mean, like I said, the Brewers Cups though. Like if you go to the Brewers Cup and your friends are going to be tasting your coffee unless you can. Uh, and you've dialed in your water for the, well, I'll ask you, what water are you using for the Brewer's Cup? Well, it's prelims and we're required to use the water that's provided. Okay. So I don't know until I get there, but I also don't know what coffee I'm using until I get there for the prelim. Cool. Yeah. Are you taking like one coffee with different roasts? Um, we get to pick the coffee there, they provide two coffees from two different roasters. So to then the, the point of our conversation earlier about coffees being roasted to the water, um, I'm assuming that the roasters will probably be local to Denver and I'm using Denver water. So okay. crossing fingers. Yeah. I mean, assuming that they're from Denver, I'm assuming that the host sweet bloom will have coffee as part of the selection. So 
Yeah, the thing I'm most, as an aside, the thing I'm most worried about is the boiling point of the water is going to be much lower than I'm used to, and I brew with hot yeah. water. Yeah, you're going to get yourself like, what is it, like three degrees lower? I think I looked it up the other day, and it was 96 degrees, that, or yeah. 196 degrees. So that's really uh, low. 196 would be wild. That feels, that is that really what it is? I, I mean, I, I think that so. Let me check. While we're talking about it, 198 degrees. 198. There you go. Um, I have a follow-up question, but I'll let you continue oh, answering. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I'll let you go ahead. Um, so is there anybody who is making, you know, like third wave water um, that you think um, really does the job well of what you think would be the best composition of water? Um, and minerals and all of that. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, everyone who's taken the time to put minerals together in third wave water is an example, but there are a bunch of other people who've done this. I think, uh, there's now like drop, like eyedroppers that contain the minerals already dissolved in the water. Um, anybody who's taken the time to try and simplify the mathematics of this is doing a great job because it turns out that you know, I can teach you chemistry. I can sit there with you. And by the end of two hours, you will totally understand it. I wrote a book on it and I still get even the most knowledgeable people in the industry saying things that make no sense to whatsoever when it comes to this stuff. So, <laughs> so, so like, let, let's just put it very gently. Let's put it, let's put it like there's not really a single water that's going to be the best for all copies for exactly the reasons we've been talking about. Um, it turns out that I think people have come to the conclusion that bicarbonate's the worst thing that you could have too much of. Sure. And therefore, anybody who's actually developed a water recipe that keeps the bicarbonate below, I, I don't know, let's say below 50 ppm, 50 milligrams per liter, which is, that's pretty high. So even like below 40, that would be that water is going to be perfectly fine to brew coffee with. So anyone who's made a product that sits around there is going to be doing great. Um, for, you know, for, you see a lot of these water recipes showed up online. Like I think Barista Hustle has a nice article that captures very, very many of these things. And I think there's a few other, you know, a few other websites where people have really deep dived into this topic and, there's even a water recipe named the Hendon recipe, which by the way, I have no recollection whatsoever of ever developing this. <laughs> so I, I like, really, I think, I think this might've been one of those things where I, we were at like a Lamarzaco party at the SCA or something. And somebody asked me this exact question and I just rattled off some random numbers and that has become, so <laughs> I really, I don't I have no recollection. So, uh, I honestly, I, you know, my opinion of this has changed a lot since when we first started the the whole journey and now the best, the, actually the best water that I use is the, I don't want to filter. I want to buy coffee that tastes good with the tap water I have. And in Eugene, we're lucky. Okay. We got soft water. I'd feel very different if I was in like some really hard water location, uh, but for me, the best water is the one where I can just tap it out, not destroy equipment, boil it, get 
except that you know we have soft water so all the coffee i make is thin very acidic not that enjoyable but it's better than being like tasting like really chalky and and not acidic so i'm happy with that nice how um, bad is it you guys are it's pretty bad it's horrible it's hard i because i used to live in seattle and i miss just being able to drink water from the tap and yeah. I can't do that up here in LA. It's disgusting. Yeah, I used to live in Bend, and the water was delicious uh, on the tap, but um, so not here. Before, before I took this job, I had this Instagram—I don't even know—highlight uh, the—I don't know—the permanent stories. Yeah, I used to do this thing where I would travel around the world, and I'd take my camera in my on my phone into the shower with me and basically film like chest up and wash my hair on camera and then assess the water hardness based on the foam that would come out of the shampoo and then make an estimate of the hardness and then go and titrate. And it was like this short little video. I think these days that'd probably go nuts on TikTok or something. But anyway, as it turns out, when I got the, when I got the job, he has, I'll, I'll show you Nick Cho. When I got the job, they told me to take, <laughs> Take those down uh, because I guess it's inappropriate for a professor to be topless in a serial. <laughs> <laughs> it's for science. I don't know. Whatever. That's so uh, funny. I might bring it back, although it's get it's getting less enjoyable probably to you know. But um, I'm sure that's one of the, the sort of the side the byproducts of you know living in hard water location is coming from Seattle. You wash your hair and it foams in Seattle like you know crazy, and then in Los Angeles it's like nothing, right? Yeah. I actually have a shower filter for that. Do you really? I put That's... a filter in my shower head so I can actually foam my shampoo. I might yeah. have to, to do that. Yeah. Although I grew up in a suburb and we had like soft water there and I felt I've, there was probably a water softener at our house or whatever, but I felt like when I would go home to wash my hair at my parents' house, it would feel slimy because it was so soft compared mm -hmm. to what it was used to. But. Yeah, it never comes out. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah. So, I mean, we're doing a lot of shower discussion here, but I, <laughs> so I just renovated my bathroom and to overcome that problem, I took, I feel bad about this, but I did this. I took the flow restrictor out of the shower head that we put in this thing, this like basically drills a hole in you now. It's like, it's a, it's a rain shower, but it's like, it's not like any rain I've ever been in. <laughs> <It's serious>. <laughs> <laughs> Come out clean. <laughs> That's awesome. Hot tip for everyone. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've kind of covered some misconceptions um, or things that we understand poorly, but is there anything that we haven't touched on that you feel like is a pretty common misunderstanding or misconception about water as it relates to coffee that you think we should know? And by we, I mean coffee people. Uh. Well, there was, you know, there was a, a, a period of time and I don't know if it's still like this. So you have to tell me because you're still in the competition side of things. But there was a period of time where being able to use science, like water science, chemistry or any, any science that people happen to know a little bit of was almost weaponized. It was like, hey, I know more than you. Therefore, I'm better at coffee than you. And this definitely showed up in water, like in these presentations. It was like early on. It was like, oh, yeah, I've got, you know, X amount of magnesium. I got X, um, Y amount of sulfate, I, you know, all this stuff. 
And I remember, I remember hearing all these things and it was like, wow, that was definitely not the point of what we were trying to achieve here. But, uh, you know, it gives, it gives everybody a way to one up each other. I don't know. Is that a win? Probably not. But anyway, um, so I was a little worried about that initially. So I guess one of the misconceptions was there's not a best water. It's like there, there can be a best coffee, um, but, you know, that's also subjective by definition in the competition always highlights that, but the, uh, but sure there, I mean, there can be a, a good water for a good coffee and, and so forth. Um, I have one other misconception. We didn't do a good job of describing this in the book, but I'm going to see if we can talk through some math. I know this format is suboptimal for doing mathematics, but, um, <laughs> let's, let's see how we go. So imagine, imagine you have a shot of espresso and you also have a filter coffee and you've extracted the same amount of coffee material from in both formats. So let's say you hit 20% extraction yield in both formats. Okay. Mm -hmm. You've used the same dose. So at the end of the day, you got the same amount of coffee stuff floating around in an espresso, a little drink as you do in a filter coffee, a big drink. And so of course uh, you would say, okay, the key difference there uh, is the TDSs are different, total dissolved solid because they have the same amount of material, but the volume is different. Therefore the espresso might be 10% TDS. 10% of the mass is coffee and the filter coffee might be 1%, let's say that'd be dilute, but let's say 1% TDS. And so only 1% of that cup is, is coffee material and the rest of it is water. Um, so in that scenario, right, I picked those numbers because one in 10 are nice. Okay. But the, the, the point is, is that in the scenario, you have a cup of filter coffee that has the same amount of coffee material, the same amount of coffee acids in it as the little cup. But you've got 10 times more water in there. Therefore, you've got 10 times more bicarbonate in the filter coffee acting on the same amount of acids, more or less, as the, as the amount of acids in the espresso. And so I, I give you this whole preamble to get to the point, which is that hard water, places that have really high bicarbonate, tend to actually make extremely good espresso. And the reason is, is that you pack all of that acid back it down in this tiny little cup that has a finite amount of bicarbonate in it. Now there's enough bicarbonate to actually take the edge off that crazy espresso and give body. And so like these, these espressos that you get from bad water locations can be awesome. On the other hand, if someone dials in a water for a cupping bowl, which is undoubtedly much closer to filter coffee than it is to espresso in strength, you're going to find then that espresso made from water that was dialed in that way is always going to tend to the like thinner, way more acidic side of things. And so what you end up seeing is people grinding way finer, but then we have a problem because like fine ground light roast coffee behaves totally different to a dark roast coffee or darker coffee that's been put in that espresso basket, or even worse, a fine coffee or a light roast coffee that has been exposed to hard water versus soft water. Totally different ball game, right? Yeah. And so, so I guess the point is the industry has almost backed itself into a corner because we all love filter strength coffee. We all cup our coffees to do quality control, but that format inherently favors soft water because Otherwise, you're going to buffer away all the acid. When yep. in actuality, that coffee could very well have tasted outstanding in hard water espresso format. 
So we've got to have two different waters for or two different <laughs> rose profiles. Yeah. One way, yeah, different rose profiles. And so, yeah, so now you're getting on to my like ultimate conclusion here is that <laughs> the, uh, there was this phase where people were doing one roast for the coffee because they're like, this is the, the way this coffee tastes the best, right? And you can use it as filter or espresso or whatever. Cool. No problem. It may not taste very good as espresso in certain locations. It may taste outstanding as espresso in other locations and vice versa. You get the idea. On the other hand, some roasters have been like, no, I'm going to develop the coffee less for filter. I'm going to develop it more for espresso. And the paradigm was, oh, what we're going to do is instead roast a little darker, right, for espresso. This is, su this is such a wild thing. It's, it's been so hard to unpack this because it's like, but the decision you're making has... It, it is so intimately related to how much bicarbonate ends up in that cup. Like I've never, I've just never really understood the decision making process there when it's like, you know, what would be better is like, Oh, Hey, this is our hard water espresso coffee. This is our soft water espresso coffee from a roaster. Right. Mm -hmm. But it, then it just makes it complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's already complicated. So I feel yeah, like, I don't know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or, or, or it's not because like you just pour water on coffee and it comes out like totally different every single time, except for in competition where some superhumans are able to make four cups taste identical. Uh, but the rest of us mere mortals just drink whatever the hell happens. It's a lot of holding your breath while you pour, I feel like, at least for me. I'm like, okay. Don't and you hold your breath? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like... I feel like if I move too much, like differently somehow, like breathe wow. a little heavier at one point, I'm going to mess it up and it's going to breathe huh. differently. Yeah. Okay. Well. Probably not a lot of science behind that, but uh, that's how it feels. Well, I can tell you one movement that I was sort of privy to that did affect it is uh, one of these Australian Brewers Cups one time. He was this guy. Uh, he, he forgot the critical movement of turning on the water uh, boil. So that's important. Yeah, when he did the pour, <laughs> pour over looked fabulous. I mean, technique was impeccable, you know, and whatever. But the, but the the only movement that really mattered was making sure that the water was not twenty degrees Celsius. Uh, that failed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would love for you to share with everyone listening what you um, talked about at Rico, because I think everybody kind of is familiar with you around water, and there's a lot more that you do. Um, and then, you know, maybe we can have you back in the future and we can talk about other coffee topics that are not, you know, maybe something you spent way too much time thinking about that you'd like to move on from. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's good to keep the brand of water alive. It's, you know, it's, it's a positive thing. Um, so I just want to clarify so I don't go down the wrong path. I spoke at Rico once about freezing coffee. And the second time was when we spent some time together recently and at that one, I was talking about a new way to measure what's dissolved in coffee. Um, I think you want me to elaborate on the latter? Yes. Okay. Although yeah, the cool. freezing is interesting as well, but. It is. <laughs> um, it, yeah, we can, that, that topic is a complicated thing because mm -hmm. one, one of the problems we face with that is it turns out that it, it costs energy to freeze stuff. And, uh, 
It also costs energy to buy green coffee that's expensive. And so it's really, it's difficult to figure it all out. Yeah. But anyway, so the thing that I've been working on, so we, in, um, in 2020, I wrote a, a grant proposal uh, to the Coffee Science Foundation, which is an arm of the Specialty Coffee Association, which um, basically sort of links up industry partners that are interested in funding fundamental research, um, but separates them so that the industry does not own the intellectual property of the fundamental research. And this is really important because um, probably as you've, you've gleaned from what I've just been talking to you about with the water, the central thing I care about is education. I, I care way more about making um, science accessible and having people partake in the process rather than making a ton of money off of designing the next interesting water filter or whatever. Okay, so the, so when we got the Coffee Science Foundation grant, what I proposed was a new um, technique, a new device to measure what is dissolved in coffee. And what we proposed was to use a process known as electrochemical um, reactivity, or basically um, we can oxidize and reduce molecules that are dissolved in the water. And the voltage in which they oxidize or reduce tells you something about which molecules and the current or the amperage, the amount of uh, electricity that flows tells you how many. And so in principle, we can then push electricity through a cup of coffee and measure more or less what's dissolved. Uh, and I've had a, the, the Coffee Science Foundation grant actually supports a graduate student. So I have a student, Robin Bumba, who's making exceptional progress along the way towards um, our first paper on the topic. But I'll summarize, I'll summarize what we can find. Basically, the electrochemical process uh, where you, you take two sticks of metal, you shove them in the coffee, you turn on a battery, basically passes electricity through, we measure how much goes through. That uh, has revealed that we can very readily differentiate between uh, degree of roast. So it's very easy for us blindly to show, tell you which cup's lighter and darker for a given coffee, no problem. Um, we can also do strength. So we can basically do TDS. That's super, super easy. We can also detect differences in identical strength, identical roast, different brew methods. So it can discern differences between a pour over versus an espresso um, that is diluted to the same strength. So an Americano versus a batch brew, if you like. Um, and all of these things are pretty interesting. That Americano one's pretty interesting because I've always maintained that the safest drink in a scary cafe is an Americano. Uh, I love that. I don't know. What do you What do you think? I try. <laughs> no you, you, haven't, you haven't gotten into, like okay. I challenge you. Go to the cafe tomorrow that you've never you would never go to, and then order the filter, and then order the Americano, and you're gonna be like, oh, this Americano killed the filter, right? So yeah. anyway. So, so, but the, the, the difference is why? That's the question we're asking. Why, why are they different? Chemically, there's something that makes an Americano taste different to a filtered coffee or more broadly, chemically, we should be able to detect de defects. I should be able to see it somehow without having to buy, uh, you know, a whole shipping container worth of the coffee and it be maybe, maybe defective, right? So the, the technique is general. It's actually very cheap to perform. Um, in the sense that you just basically need your mobile phone with uh, one little additional connect connection and you can build it yourself. And soon we'll be able to tell everyone how to do this. Uh, it's a little daunting because this one I, I know will change the way people measure things in coffee. Um, and because of that, 
we are spending double extra time to make sure that it's reproducible, to make sure that it's accessible, uh, to publish the blueprints, to build your own devices so that it's free, you know, all the usual things that we try and do uh, with knowledge this could be um, somewhat impactful. Wow, amazing. Very cool. And you're so, going to learn electrochemistry, which is cool. That is very cool. Yeah, I think we'll have to have you back in the future if you're uh, open to it. Well, our final topic is, do you have any final teachable Sproman's that you would like to share with our audience? Teachable Sproman. Okay, so the one I, that springs to mind is that both times when we went to the World Championships, the WBC in 2014 in Rimini and 2015 was Seattle? No. Oh boy, Dublin, no, that was 16. I don't know, can't remember. Wherever it was, both times, Maxwell makes it to the final, okay? And I got real excited. Uh, he did not win, came in the top six. Was really happy about that. And at the very end, of course, there's these barriers they set up like this, like some, what, like people are gonna rush the stage or something. Uh, and I always try and rush the stage just as a joke, but at both times, I've done this. I have jumped the fence and both times have cleanly ripped my pants. <laughs> <laughs> and both times it occurred directly in front of the Sprudge reporting booth. So it was like, <laughs> I, yeah, you know, so I don't know what the teachable Sproman is here. I guess maybe don't jump the barrier at the WBC or I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't really know what people can glean from that. Um, okay, so that's that's one thing that has happened. <laughs> uh, the next thing that I, I've learned to not do is early on when we first started working in the coffee uh, industry, you know, I view myself as coffee adjacent, quite knowledgeable now, but mainly because of people like you who like spend hours talking with me about things and teaching me things. Um, but early on, I didn't know anything, right? And, and so as a result, when I was sort of growing up in the industry, I found myself putting my foot uh, in things I shouldn't have, I, I didn't know enough about. I sort of came to conclusions that I shouldn't have concluded upon. Like, for example, I uh, would make a passing comment about the temperature regulation in one espresso machine versus another one, like it was somehow based on fact. When in actuality, it was only based on another coffee person acting as if it was fact. So one thing I learned was that the coffee industry teaches me a lot of things. Um, and some of them are worth acting on and some of them are not worth saying ever again out loud. Uh, <laughs> so, so and the reason it was a problem was because the, it happened to me at the SCA. I'll give you I'm going to give you one example that happened just in Boston very recently. Mm -hmm. Well, I was in this room and I heard someone told me, they're like, hey, uh, Chris, you know that the uh, Lamarzaco party isn't happening this year. And I was like, oh, thank, I mean, thank goodness for that. First of all, I'm way too old for that. Okay. <laughs> Second of all, the last one I went to in Seattle was like totally nuts. I don't know if do either of you go to the Lamarzaco one in Seattle. Yeah. I got lost in that, that building for like, <laughs> A long time. There was that I, was like the four floors or whatever. 
Yeah. yeah, with the different tiki drinks and very, you know, like various. And it was fun because, like, I got lost and found myself at another bar that I hadn't had all of the drinks at. But <laughs> I did want to leave the party at some point, and it still took me like twenty minutes to figure out how to get out. Of <laughs> but I was, I, I was basically saying, like, look, that La Marzacco party was these days could be viewed as a super spreader event. So I am super happy that La Marzacco is not having this party. Well, as it turns out, the SCA was a super spreader event, but it also turns out that my criticism of the La Marzacco party that did not happen was being verbalized to, I don't know, what is what is his name, Kent Baki or what, one of the big guys at La Marzacco. I had no idea I was even talking to him. So, <laughs> whatever. It's not like I was saying your La Marzacco party sucked. I was, you know, I was just saying that I didn't want to go because I'm too old and I didn't want to get COVID. But... <laughs> You know, so I'm, you know, still do it to, to some extent, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You, What's your teachable Sproman? Give me one. Let's see. For this week, I think like my teachable Sproman came out of this conversation. There was like a, there was the misconception that I had when you were talking about um, just the, the bicarbonate. Like that is more of a factor than calcium when it comes to water change. So that was, that was very enlightening for me. So thank you for that. You're anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mine is Brewers Cup related for my practicing. Um, And it's very simple. I think I already knew this, but um, don't put your kettle back on the base when it's empty. Mm. Um, especially if you have at least the one that I have is the, um, stag kettle from Mm -hmm. fellow. Um, it decided to stop working entirely because Mm. it was trying to heat up and Mm -hmm. I had to unplug it. But this is the tip then if this happens to you and your kettle stops heating Mm. and the temperature is dropping, unplug it and leave it alone. I think they told me 30 seconds because I did email customer support. Um, but I ended up just unplugging it and going home and coming back and it worked just fine the next day. So that is my teachable sperment from this week, which is very similar to my other teachable sperments, which is do something dumb, figure out how to undo it and then share it with everyone. That is basically the general synopsis (laughs) of my teachable sperments. Yeah, fair enough. I I figured out how to share that I ripped my pants at the (laughs) WS. I think it's just a great story to share in general. It didn't, it didn't happen at, it might happen. Wait, is the, where is the WBC? I'd say there's still time. I'm going to it. It's in, it's in Melbourne. So I'll let you know. Wonderful. Yeah. I can't wait for the update. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, no, otherwise, um, you know, the water topic has been covered. It has been covered extensively. And actually I think um, one one thing that's worth pointing out that we didn't really mention at all in this is that I'm not the only person who's done a lot of work in this area. So, um, you know, if I had to conclude the water thing, I'd say that people like Shahan Yuretsian uh, and his research group in Zurich have, of course, done a lot. They're responsible for the, writing the SCA's water quality handbook, the new version of that now, um, which actually does a, a very nice job of detailing sort of the highlights of both what's in my book and also going beyond that. Um, so that's really good uh, and a nice accessible resource for those that are, I think it's available for everyone, but if not, it's members of the SCA. 
Is it everyone? Yeah, you can buy the book from their store. So. Oh, yeah, but for yeah. money. Yeah, it costs yeah. money. Oh, I think you have to buy it even if you're a member. Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. I Well, here we are. Teachable moment. I should not respond like that. <laughs> uh, uh, so finally, the other, thing, the other thing is there's a bunch of people who are not, like Colin Harmon had highlighted water prior to when we did it, okay? And uh, I mean, I could go way back in time and keep pointing out people who have done this along the way. Um, and then there's websites these days and, and people who have done a ton of follow-up research, whether it's uh, single, like small cafes or whether it's bigger companies. But all these people have contributed to a wealth of knowledge that is now generally available and I think widely available uh, and is a topic that I don't want to say has been talked about to death because there's always something new to learn in science, but it's, a, it's now as accessible as it could possibly be. Um, and so what I encourage people to do is actually experiment with this because I know the barrier to like making water seems high. So don't just go buy Evian water, which is really hard and buy Dasani water, which is really soft and brew coffee up. And the first problem you'll note is that the Evian deposits all the lime scale. So even when you heat it, you, you lose some of the mineral composition. So just how bad that coffee can taste is actually hidden because of the deposition. You can watch it with your eyes. So imagine that in your espresso machine, first of all. Okay, so there's that. So the barrier should be low enough. And then uh, finally, um, yeah, I think I think one other thing is, is that sometimes it comes across like I, I know, like this is solved. It's something we teach in Gen Chem. It's like first year college chemistry. Um, which is also the most important chemistry class that's taught to all chemists. Uh, the rest of them are all sort of like, you know, building here and there, expanding the Venn diagram out in different directions. But this topic of water and buffering and all that stuff is so fundamental and complex, and it underpins so many things that there's no way that I'm expecting you or even myself to understand the magnitude and the scale of the problem. Not a joke. Um, that the uh, that this spans. So if you're feeling a little discouraged by it, that's okay. That's basically how I feel every single day. <laughs> okay. Amazing. It's good to know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I'm sure that I will be bugging you again in the future to talk with us. Um, and although, like you said, there are lots of people who've done a lot of study on lots of different coffee topics. Uh, you're the one that ended up uh, getting coffee from me at Rico. So I have your email address and I will be bugging you again. <laughs> That's, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, like I said, thank you so much for being here. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. Thanks guys. Oh, you know, have me back when we, when I actually do something new and good here, which should hopefully be soon. Thank you again to Chris for taking the time to talk water with us. You learned some useful and very helpful information and hope you all can soak it up and apply it to your work and training. We'll I'll catch you all on the next one. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back next week to talk more coffee with you all. Until then, continue to drink good coffee. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and keep up with us on Instagram at Totally Dissolve Pod. Send us questions or thoughts in the DMs or email us at totallydissolvedpod at gmail.com. Bye, Bye for, for now. now.